Hello. The Bible reading for this message is taken from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Can I encourage you to push pause in the video and go and have a read of that passage and then come back? So that's James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. As a church, we come very tenderly to this passage today. In chapter 1, James uh, launches into the one of the central realities of the Christian life, and that is the subject of trials and temptations and sufferings that each and every one of us face. We've all sat through this lockdown, and yet our experiences will be very different. On top of that, there'll be the struggles that we went into the lockdown already dealing with, and there will be struggles uh, that we're coming out of uh, because of the lockdown, and how that has compounded us relationally, or financially, or with work pressures, or whatever it is that you might be facing today. When James talks about trials, various trials, in this passage, it's a, a term that really is all-encompassing of all kinds of trials that you might be facing, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, economically, whatever it is that you're going through, that's what James is talking about this morning when he talks about these various trials. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about the book of James is that it is written uh, not by James, the disciple of the apostle, but by James, Jesus' half-brother. That's important because I think that what James, the letter in the New Testament, does for us is it gives us uh, the experience of one man who knew Jesus in two very different ways. He grew up with him. He was his half-brother. He would have known him for the first 30 years of his life before his ministry. I mean, I know that growing up, some of us have had difficult siblings, but can you imagine growing up with the Son of God in your home? And yet James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said that he was. In fact, according to John chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And then, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appears to James. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James gets this special appearance uh, of Jesus to himself personally, and he's completely and thoroughly uh, converted and transformed. James will become this pillar of the early church. He'll lead uh, the church in Jerusalem. We read about him a little bit more in the book of Acts. And so James writes out of that experience, uh, out of not believing in Jesus, uh, not trusting or taking Jesus at his word, and then believing in Jesus. And I think that that information is incredibly helpful uh, because James challenges uh, half-hearted, superficial faith that doesn't take God at his word. From the beginning to the end of the book, James exposes all the games and all the charades that we could possibly play when it comes to living out our faith. He deals with things like friendship with God and friendship with the world and that they're completely incompatible. Uh, he understands, uh, having heard and saw Jesus, that we can't just be hearers of the word, we must be doers as well. And to be a hearer of the word, but not to be a doer of the word, uh, is actually to deceive ourselves. 
Uh, the transformation that took place in James' life maybe is seen most clearly when he introduces the letter and himself in verse 1, and he says he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a half-brother to the Son of God, a servant of God, and a slave of Jesus Christ. He writes to the twelve tribes that are dispersed abroad, uh, which is just bringing in a, an Old Testament uh, allusion to the people of God. God gathered his people and then he scattered his people. God also gathered together the church and then in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, that church, because of persecution, is dispersed throughout the world. And so when James writes this letter, which is probably the first uh, letter, first piece of literature that we still have from that early church period, he's writing to the people of God who are now dispersed and scattered and who are facing all kinds of trials and sufferings, who are facing many temptations and who are in, who are in danger uh, of uh, a faith uh, that is lived uh, apart from a relationship with God. Uh, he's not concerned uh, with a particular uh, belief system, as it were. He, he's not outlining doctrine. He's saying, here's the gospel. Now, what does it look like in everyday life? You see, their temptation was the temptation to go back into the world, uh, of falling in love with the things that they left behind, of being distracted by the things of this world and losing sight of eternity and where God was taking them. They were in danger of putting confidence in themselves and not in Jesus Christ, of playing it cool with their faith, to claim faith, but to find themselves having less and less active faith. And in chapter 1, James launches into this first reality that I think any Christian at some point in time will face and will probably face a number of times throughout their journey home to heaven. And it's this issue of trials. Sometimes, friends, we struggle to understand what God is doing. We know that He's sovereign. We believe that He's in control. And yet we don't know what He's doing right now in our life. How should I respond? How should I think in the face of these trials that are come my way, that I know that somehow the Lord is behind and He's bringing, but what's He doing? Maybe, and we're tempted to think this, maybe He's forgotten me. Maybe He's abandoned me. And this first section, especially verses 2 to 4, helps us to think about the world by giving us a framework. It gives us a worldview uh, that is based on the gospel, that is based on saving faith in the gospel for people who are suffering, people who are trusting in the risen Lord Jesus and who consider themselves servants of God and yet are having to deal with these trials. Let me just firstly say what a worldview is. A worldview, very simply, is the way that we think about the world, but it's also the way that we experience the world. Let me try and illustrate that. Somebody uh, gives a speech. We've watched a few of those of late. And all of a sudden, there's all kinds of conversations and comments on WhatsApp or on Facebook. And people have got different opinions about the speech. A lot of that is based on your worldview. So it's about what you think, but it's also about how you experience things. How did you experience um, being released from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m.? What's been your experience of that? And all we have to do is look outside to realize that all kinds of people have had different experiences of what that's about. So your worldview informs your experience. 
When trials come, what will your worldview inform? What will your worldview make you think about those trials? Well, I can tell you now that all of our worldviews basically say that this verse should read more like, count it all joy when you avoid trials, or when you escape trials, or when you're finally delivered from those trials. Uh, when trials come, we pray that those who are facing those trials uh, would get out of them as quickly as possible and that they would stop suffering. We pray for smoothness in the Christian life or for the victorious Christian life. But what happens when trials come and there doesn't seem to be any way out of it? How do we read and experience it when James says to us, consider it a great joy or consider it pure joy when you face these trials? Because what happens when you do face that trial and you pray that that trial would come to an end and it doesn't seem like there's any answer to that prayer? Has God not heard you? Is he ignoring you? Maybe prayer doesn't work and you begin to think along those lines. You see, we never pray that Christians who are going through suffering and trials would count it pure joy. We just ask for them to be delivered. And it's not wrong to pray that. I mean, after all, Jesus did teach us to pray. Lord, give us today our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there certainly is a place to pray for that deliverance. But I think that there's also a place to pray that when we face trials, we would learn how to or know how to count them uh, pure joy. Now remember, trials, various trials, it's all-encompassing. It's anything that you might be facing right now as a trial. External, internal, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, economic, relational. It's all bound up in there. When you meet them, you didn't plan to have this trial. You didn't expect this trial. This trial has just come upon you and you never asked for it. What does James say that you need to do? Well, he says you need to shift your worldview. He's not saying, uh, he, he, do not just fixate on the trial. Okay, that's, that, here's the gift to you this morning. When you're facing whatever trial you're in, stop fixating on it. Yeah, that's what we do. Here's the trial. How do I solve it? How do I fix it? How do I talk my way out of it? Whatever, okay? Don't fixate on the trial. What James is telling us to do is to see through the trial, to see beyond the trial, to draw back the curtain of the trial, to see what's really going on. He's not telling us to feel something. He's not saying that you should feel joy or you should feel happy. He's not asking you to be a stoic. He's not telling you to enjoy your suffering and, and bring in some masochism. He, he's not saying to pretend that everything's okay or just have a, an incredibly positive attitude. James is talking about something completely different. He's speaking here about the worldview of faith in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He demands... Not that we feel something, but that we count it. And the word for count is the word for um, considering. It is to reckon. It is to calculate. Now friends, apart from God, this is humanly impossible. Without faith in God, everything revolves around my own happiness and my own equilibrium and my own pleasure. There's a vast difference between enjoying the suffering, which is not Christian, and counting or reckoning the total sum of the suffering as joy. Joy is the full knowledge 
the deep confidence that I am in the hands of the loving Heavenly Father who has made himself known through his word. This has everything to do with God and what God is doing in my life. And that, friends, is why Christian joy is compatible with suffering. Counting suffering as joy is unnatural for us as humans, but as Christians, it is an act of faithful obedience and completely possible because God has made it known in his word and he gives us his spirit by which we can do this. Uh, Moses was able to do this when he considered, it's the same word, counted, when he counted abuse suffered for the Christ of greater worth and wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And friends, there's no greater testimony than that of a brother or sister in Christ who does this publicly, who has suffered and who has suffered well, and in the midst of that trial has counted it all joy. This is what comes through a worldview that is uniquely informed and transformed by the saving message of Jesus Christ in the gospel. This is what is truly a Christian worldview. It is serving a Savior who bought us salvation through his own trial, suffering a horrific death for us. He exchanged his life for our life. And verse 3 tells us that you know that the testing of your faith, it produces endurance, and that this endurance needs to have its full effect so that you may be complete and mature and lacking nothing. You see, the steadfastness that it's calling for is not the steadfastness of a ship uh, that is in a harbor and that is safely anchored there while a terrible storm is blowing over. The picture is of a ship moving forward over the waves during the storm and continuing in the same direction. You see, that's the picture that we have on our journey home. The storms of life will come. There will be all kinds of trials. And what James is calling us for is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to stay fixated on the final destination. The wind will blow, the waves will come. We will we'll feel like we have got nothing left to give. And James is saying when those times come, learn how to see them and count them as pure joy because they are producing in you endurance and steadfastness. And when that has had its full effect in you, you will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. He's not saying here that you're going to become morally sinless in this life, but that the direction that you're heading in is the direction of maturity. How is any of this possible at all? How do we count trials as joy? You might be saying, Jason, this is, this is too hard for me. It's, it's too much for me. Well, the good news is that James doesn't stop in verse 4 and move on to something else. Uh, James says that, um, that, 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 that what God is doing in us is he's bringing us to completeness. He's bringing us to completion. That's why he can say that when this endurance has had its full effect, you will be mature and you will be complete. You will lack nothing. All the fullness of what God is doing in your life is not bound up in your circumstances. You see, we buy into that lie that being mature and being complete and lacking nothing is bound up in our circumstances or is bound up in material things, 
and it's not. It's bound up in what God is doing in you because of where it is that God is trying to take you. And remember that this world is not your home. Everything that comes is getting you ready and making sure that you finish the race, that you grab hold of that prize. You see, James has the goal in mind. That's what's at his heart. He wants you to get to the goal. Now he goes on and talks about wisdom in verses 5 to 8. The wisdom that you will need to have if you, when you think that you're weak, when you know that you're broken. Uh, James says that we're actually fools and we need wisdom. Uh, now that's a really harsh word, um, but the, the idea of the fool in the Bible uh, is the fool is movable. The fool can become wise with the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fool can move uh, from his state of foolishness towards wisdom, if only he has the right tools, and only has the desire to do it. James will pick up later on him being double-minded. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you find that you're being a fool with your trials, well, you should ask God. Ask God who gives, gives generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Now, verse 5 is a wonderful verse because it pictures uh, us who lack wisdom over and over in life, coming to God over and over in life, and God giving us wisdom over and over and over every time we come. Every time we come to God and say, Lord, I need more wisdom, he says, here's more. He doesn't say, hey, where's the wisdom that I gave you the last time? He is happy to continuously and constantly and consistently give us that wisdom. He doesn't berate us when, he st when we stuff up. He wants us, he desires for us, and ungrudgingly, he continues uh, to give us, to hand out that wisdom. Not wisdom from our own reflections, not wisdom from our own experiences. It is a supernatural gift of God. I cannot tell you how helpful I have found this in my life, but also especially, I think in the last five weeks, to come to God and to ask Him for wisdom. To know that I can come to Him and He will give it to me. And, and, and regardless of my behavior, regardless of my actions, when I begin to look outward, uh, when I, sorry, when I stop looking outward, and I rather begin to look upward, and recognize that that's where wisdom is really found. You see, friends, none, one of us will be unaffected by what's taken place in these last few weeks. And although we've all shared the same trial, what the Lord is doing in each of us will be very different. And so we need that wisdom that He gives to us uniquely and specifically to help us because what He's doing in each one of us is unique and is different. What He's working in my life and confronting me with is going to be completely different to what He is working in your life and what He is confronting you with. Often in trials, we don't see what the real issue is. But when the trials come, it is an opportunity for us to push pause, to stop, and to reflect on what God needs to work on in our life. 
We can become so focused on the issue of hand that we can fail to see what's behind it. And that's why James encourages us to look beyond the trial, to look through the trial, to peer behind the curtain of the trial, and to ask and reflect, what is it that God is working and doing in my life right now? And by asking him for wisdom, we will begin to be able to discern how to move forward, step by step, even if right now it's only one step that he reveals that you're able to take. The wisdom that he's talking about here is not intellect, it's not brain power. It, where God, uh, what God is, is talking about, uh, what he is uh, bringing to bear, is living in the fear of the Lord and turning away from evil. He's not giving us technical skills. He is encouraging us to pursue a love for Him and a life that is shaped by faith in His will. And it comes through prayer. God is a giving God. He doesn't give us this wisdom and reproach us, uh, call us out on failures in the past. He just gives it and He gives it and he gives it. Although verse 6 does kind of put a little bit of a caveat on there, but be careful how you read that. He says, let him ask uh, in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Uh, let me just say two things. The first is this. You might feel a little bit guilty this morning about going back to God and asking Him for wisdom again because you've messed up in the past before on a certain issue and you feel like you can't go back to God in prayer. Friends, let me tell you this morning that you can. That's what James is telling us, that we can go back to God over and over and over and over. He gives wisdom irrespective of our circumstances, whether we're doing well or we're doing poorly. It's not based on our performance, you know, the key spiritual performance indicators. He gives regardless of guilt and blame. So let me encourage you to go back to him this morning. But go back armed now with this extra piece of knowledge that, of what verses 6 and 7 and 8 are talking about. He's not saying that you've got to make sure that you get your faith right, all right? He, he's talking here uh, not about intellectual doubt, uh, the person that he's talking about here isn't the person that says, Lord, I believe, but I've got some unbelief. Can you please help me in my unbelief? That, that's not the doubt that he's dealing with here. The, the doubt that he is dealing with here is when um, we come to God for a bit of a solution. We come to God for a bit of wisdom, um, but we kind of only want it for now, or we only want it if it suits us. Or if we're not so sure about the wisdom that God gives us, we're going to just ignore it. Uh, verse 7 talks about the double-minded person. This person is not going to God uh, with intellectual doubts. Uh, this person um, is coming to God and saying, I'm willing to ask God, but let's see what he says. My heart is actually divided. I'm not sure that I really want to hear what God has to say on this. So let's go, and if it works now, good, and if it doesn't work another time, well, that's fine. See, that person's really saying is that I only want God's wisdom if and when it suits me. Um, this is what the double-minded person, uh, double person is like. 
They ask God to show the way, but there's always a bit of reservation and always a bit of hesitation uh, because uh, they know that they're not really going to follow the way that he shows them. Or they might follow a part way, but they're not prepared to commit 100%. You know, some of you guys have been doing those Jeff workouts and it's like, are you ready to go steady with Jeff? Uh, and some people have jumped in and some people haven't and some people are keeping it at a distance and it's like, you know, are you ready to go steady with Jeff? And that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, I, I like Jeff, but from a distance. I'm not ready to go steady with Jeff. And it's like, I, I like God from a distance and I like some of the things that he does and I don't like others and so I'm going to pick and choose the bits that I like. I'll work out when I want to and I work, work out when I don't want to and I'm not committing any money to the Jeff project. But we do that with God. I'll do it when it suits me. I'll do it when it like, hey, when there's a positive sermon message, that's a good one. When it's negative um, and it doesn't make me feel so comfortable, I'm just going to ignore that. You know, and the double-minded person in our hearts, they pray that they want to hear what God says, but in their hearts, they actually say, I'll only obey if it suits me and doesn't deeply affect my lifestyle. What do you do when you pray and you discover that the wisdom that God gives you contradicts everything that you know, everything that you hold so dearly to, or when he calls you to repent? You know, that's the picture that you got here of that double-minded person. They're just surging with the sea. They're here, there, and everywhere. When it suits them, they're with God. When it doesn't suit them, they ignore what it is that he has to say. So friends, what you need to understand is that when you come to God and you ask Him for that wisdom, you ask Him 100%. And in the same way that He sent you the trial, He promises to give you the wisdom to be able to count that trial pure joy. And it's only when those two come together that we're actually able to know the what and the why and the how of how we can endure and see verse 4 have its full effect in our lives and on our lives. That is what is at the heart of everything that James chapter 1 is saying. And so friends, once again, we're being called to make a decision. To have a different worldview, which comes from a different wisdom from above, which looks through the trials and see through through, sees through those trials, the giving God who is generous and gives simply and abundantly without reproach. And is constantly dedicated to what is good and best for us, even though we might not always think it or see it or feel it. And friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that is what practical Christian faith is all about. It is looking at the world and seeing God, the giver, enduring difficulties, not because we are strong and wise in our own rights, but because we know that we have a Father who gives grace and gives more grace and gives more grace. And so we endure the trials, not because we are great, but because we have a relationship with the one who gives us more grace and invites us to come into him. 
I don't know why, but I've just got on my heart Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Friends, that is our comfort in the midst of trials, to know that God's rod and his staff, his wisdom are there to comfort and to get us through to the under end of those trials. And when we are through, we will know that endurance has had its full effect so that we will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. May God add his blessing from his word on your life today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your word today be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as we face trials. Help us to have this wisdom. Give us this wisdom from above so that we can put one step foot in front of the other. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.